So Leviticus chapter 16, verse 29, is where we'll begin. This shall be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall humble your souls and not do any work, whether the native or the alien, alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you, to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins, all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest for you that you may humble your souls. It is a permanent statue. So the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments, and make atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. He shall also make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. This is where it is is signified in Scripture. This is where God brings it to the Israelites and He says, from here on out, this day shall be observed. And it has been. For 3,500 years, the Day of Atonement has been observed, observed by the Jewish people. Now, I want you to understand something as we get into this. So far, in our studies in Leviticus, we've gone through several laws. We've gone through several ordinances and offerings designed for holiness for the people. Designed to make them holy. But in all of these, what we haven't seen is any particular offering that cleanses all the sins, that cleanses every sin. It's particular sins or certain sins at a time. But there hasn't been anything that takes care of this or or handles the sin of the people with finality. This is it. Your sins are completely covered. So in every situation, I might be clean of this particular sin, but give, give me a second and I'll be, you know, filthy of another one. So once a year, God comes along and says, I want to give you something comprehensive, a comprehensive picture. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, or what Jews today will even call Yoma, just the day. It's so specific and so special to them, it's just called the day, and they know what they're talking about. The Day of Atonement. It's a comprehensive picture. Comprehensive because Yom Kippur covered everything missed by any previous sacrifices annually. That means that there was one sin that was, that was missed or forgotten or, or a sin of ignorance. It was covered. The Jewish people could know comprehensively that annually, once a year, all sin was wiped away. By the time their heads hit the pillow that night, they could know they were clean at least once a year. But it was a picture, it was comprehensive, but it was a picture because it was still a substitute. At best, the Day of Atonement can only hold off judgment and punishment for sin for one more year. That's the best it could do. God, it's like getting a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's getting a pass. It's like a child having a little pass that says, one free, uh, no spanking. You know, you do something wrong, you get to turn that in. Okay, we'll let you off the hook this time. It's God literally looking the other way once a year. Saying, for all of your sins, we're going to call it atoned for. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul says, speaking of special days, he says, these are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So until Jesus came, everything in the law and the prophets, it was all shadows. There was no true substance. It was all God saying, I'm going to do something to hold off, to reserve judgment. 
until the true sacrifice comes. When the true sacrifice comes, then I can bring judgment because you have the, the opportunity to really be saved of your sins. Now, some have, have taken the word atonement and they've made a little wordplay with it. They've said atonement is like at-one-ment. Breaking up the word, it's like being at one with God. At one minute. I don't like the sound of that because it's not accurate. For Yom Kippur, with all its solemnity, could not bring the people at one minute with the Lord. Honestly, by the time someone's head hit the pillow that night, they had probably sinned again anyway. Even, even if they felt like, okay, the day has been good, I'm, I'm, I'm forgiven of all the sins for the previous year, it didn't take long to start building them up for the next year. Atonement. It doesn't quite work because atonement is, as we've talked about many times, it's covering. It's a voucher. Atonement is not what the Day of Atonement is about. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, and I think this is a really interesting verse. tells us, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance... God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. That word overlooked is literally winked. That God winked at the times of ignorance. He said, all right, you know, it's against my better judgment. There you go. It's against my better judgment, but I'm going to let you have a buy, a pass. It goes on and says, because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In other words, God, on the day of atonement, he kippured the people. He kippured them. That's the word. Covered them. He covered their sins. He covered up their sins until the substance came, which is Jesus. When Jesus, the substance, came, the sin could be uncovered and not atoned for, but paid for. Completely taken care of. Not just atoned for, but abolished, as we talked about on Sunday. Now, something else to understand about Yom Kippur before we get on into this. It's a holiday, but it's not like Christmas or New Year's Day or even Easter for us. You don't go up to a Jewish person and say, hey, happy Yom Kippur, because it wasn't a happy day. It isn't, even to this day, a happy day. The tenth day of the seventh month is the most solemn day of the Jewish calendar, centering around that atoning sacrifice. Verse 29, is, as we began reading, says, You shall humble your souls and not do any work. The word humble is anah, which literally means afflict. You shall afflict your souls. Don't do any work. This is a solemn, serious day. For on that day, what the people recognized more than anything else was their sin. They recognized there had to be a massive sacrifice to take care of or to cover over their sin. So great was their sin. All the other sacrifices, and you know there are tons of them that happen on an annual basis, on a daily basis. All those sacrifices couldn't do it. The sin was too great, as it would be with you and I if not for Christ. After the fall of Jerusalem, the temple sacrifices ceased, which meant on the Day of Atonement they couldn't have atonement. They didn't have a temple in which to do the sacrifices. Or a tabernacle, as before when they wandered in the wilderness, they had nothing, no place to, to uh, have the sacrifices made. And so they began to employ substitutionary sacrifices. Here are a few of them. Nowadays in Israel, it's repentance, prayer, and charity. Those are the three main ones. Repentance, prayer, and charity. If you'll do these things, it's substitutionary. It's not the real sacrifice, but it's kind of like a sacrifice. And so they'll do those things. If someone asks forgiveness of another person in the ten days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Jewish person is obligated to give forgiveness. During those ten days specifically, 
because they're directed toward this sacrifice that, that right now in the world cannot happen. Some Jewish people even today will sacrifice roosters for the men in the family and hens for the women in the family. There's no biblical or scriptural basis for it whatsoever, but it does show the depth of understanding among the Jews. There needs to be a blood sacrifice, and yet they know they can't have one. They know they can't have one that is at least biblical. Orthodox Eastern European Jews used to practice the custom of Malkot. Malkot is literally inflicting 39 lashes on themselves on the Day of Atonement. So serious they are about atoning for sin on that day that they would literally lash themselves. A practice again among the Orthodox Eastern European Jews. Some even stated, some rabbis stated that a person's own death could be a substitutionary sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, although you can only do that once. Others will substitute the solemn study of the law. Some will substitute a complete fast for all Jews over the age of 13 to fast all day, not even allowing water to touch the lips of a parched person. They're very serious on this very serious and solemn day. It's an annual day, a continual day, a formal day for covering their sins. Well, there are three sections tonight as we go through chapter 16 that we'll look at. And I'll just give you this little outline that we can follow. Section number one, or part one, is covering the priest. Covering the priest, and that's verses 1 through 11. Second part is covering the place, verses 12 through 19. And the third part, covering the people. Verses 20 through 34. Covering the priest, covering the place, and covering the people. Number one, covering the priest. Verse one. Verse one. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. Do you remember what happened? Remember Aaron's two sons, what they did? They lit that strange fire. In fact, I'll, I'll read this to you. Back in Leviticus chapter 10. Verses 1 and 2 is where we saw this happen. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. It happened on that eighth glorious day, that wonderful day when all of Israel was celebrating. It was the ordination of the priests. Finally, they were going to be set up to serve. And, and the priesthood was, was begun. And it was that eighth day. They had seven days of, of staying in the tabernacle, of, of preparing for this. And on the eighth day, here come Nadab and Abihu, and they offer up strange fire. And instantaneously, they were fired. God said, you're done. They were burned out. They were taken out by the Lord. But it's interesting to me that God links these two events. He links these two chapters. Now, as we look at chapter 16, what's interesting at the very beginning of it is we have another clue as to what may have really been going on with Nadab and Abihu. In chapter 10, we understand a couple of things. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10, we understand that they took their fire pans and offered strange fire, and that wasn't allowed. Second thing that we kind of figured out when we studied chapter 10 is verses 9 and 10 indicate that they were probably drinking, if not drunk, at the time. Which meant they were in the tabernacle, they were partying, they were having a great old time. It was, you know, ordination day, woohoo! And they got out there and they had too much to drink. They kind of lost control of their faculties and they went and offered this strange fire. But now we have a third piece to this puzzle. Something that we didn't know before, something we didn't see in chapter 10, but we see in verse 1. Listen again. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. Where was the presence of the Lord? 
specifically in the tabernacle in what part of the tabernacle in the holy of holies so not only did they offer strange fire not only had they likely been drinking but they went into the holy of holies a place where only one person could go and that person only once a year and to that point nobody had gone in there yet with the exception possibly of Moses they were not to go in there at all but chapter 16 tells us that they approached the presence of the Lord they went into the presence that they took their strange fire and they you know dressed to kill they went in there and were killed themselves and God connects these two holy holy presence of the Lord that was above the mercy seat in the holy of holy holy is a place reserved only for the high priest we need to understand before we even head any further into the day of atonement that God's holiness is too consuming it is too righteous it is too bright his glory is too heavy for mere mortal man to bear Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29 tells us for our God is a consuming fire now some have actually said that a relationship with, with God would have been easier if we lived back in the days of Moses because we would have seen the things that they had seen I don't know if you've ever thought this way but if I had seen the Red Sea part I believe yeah why can't I, I wish I could say I wish we could hear God speaking from the mountain then I'd believe and a lot of people today would ask for that kind of thing those kinds of miracles the reality is I would much rather live now in the days of grace than then in the days of law <laughs> you want to move up to the front come on up it's just the doors they're going to do that they're going to be rattling a lot I just don't want you to miss this so you know if you want to Terry move her up <laughs> I just keep seeing the look on your face Lord it's like <laughs> yeah really take us now Lord Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 we're going to get into this I, 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 stick with me here for a few minutes because as we go it, it really gets good it's worth the fear of the barn. Trust me. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19. Therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. By the way, just a side note, the veil that was in the temple, you know, the veil that hung that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that veil was 10 inches thick. It took over 100 priests to hang that thing up inside the temple. And yet God ripped it in two from top to bottom when Jesus was crucified on the cross. Amazing. Well, until the Lord ripped the veil, there were specific regulations about approaching the presence, about coming into the presence of God. Regulations about when, about who, and about how it was to be done. When? Once a year only, on Yoma, on the day. Who? Only the high priest. And how? How? Even the high priest could only enter in under cover. Verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Now, right there in verse 2, you say, Well, then who can possibly come before the Lord? How is mercy possible? You can't enter in. You can't come before the Lord, God is saying. You, even Aaron, tell him, he is not to come in here at all, ever. Well, except for that one day a year. But God begins by making the point, my holiness is massive, and if you try to come into my presence, you will die. 
The only way you can come in, Aaron, is through painstaking preparation one time a year to plead the mercy. And only, only if the high priest himself was covered. Verse 3. Aaron shall enter the holy... By the way, it's not holy place. If you've got place in your Bible, you can scratch it out because the word place is not in the original language. You shall enter the holy with this. That word holy is kadosh. The holiest place. Aaron shall enter the holy with this. With a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Verse 4, he shall put on the holy linen tunic, and the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with the linen sash, and attired with the linen turban. These are holy garments. Then he shall bathe his body in water, and put them on. Now listen to this. Look at what he's wearing. Consider what it is that Aaron puts on here. It's not the high priestly garments that he normally would wear. You remember the high priestly garments, the breast piece, with all the sacred beautiful stones on it and, and the onyx stones on the shoulders? Then he had that turban that had the gold mitre on the front of it, that diadem that, that literally said, Holy to the Lord. And he had on the, the ephod and the robe and the sash, the tunic. He looked holy when he was dressed in his high priestly garb. But on the Day of Atonement, God said, No, 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 you're not going to wear that. On the Day of Atonement, Aaron, you put on simple linen garments. Plain. In fact, these linen garments weren't even as nice as the linen garments of the rest of the priests. The sash here is just a plain linen sash. The other priests had a beautifully woven with four different colors, beautiful sash. But on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would take off his high priestly garb and he would put on plain, simple linen. Why is that? A couple of things to know. Number one, God is not impressed by outer dress. Never has been, never will be. Colossians chapter 2 verse 20. Paul says, if you died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters, Paul says, which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What is Paul saying? He's saying stop living by the rules as if the rules are what will save you. Stop trying to dress yourself up and make yourself look righteous or holy or good when you truly are not. It's not by following these things that you will find your joy in Christ. If you died to Christ, he says, live to Christ. But don't live to the rules. Do you understand the difference there? That if I live to the rules, I'm, I'm living legalistically. Jeff, is what we were talking about earlier. That I can, I can live a life where everything I do is based on my works, where my acceptance by God is based on how I'm doing that day. Or, as Paul would encourage, I can live as though I've died in Christ, now I'm, I'm alive in Christ, I live for Him. I'm compelled by His love to do anything I do, knowing, knowing that nothing I do changes how He feels about me. Changes the love relationship I have with Christ. Jesus Himself said in Matthew 23:27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So on the holiest day of the year, the high priest did not dress up. He dressed down in humility. 
If it were the church today, the high priest didn't put on the three-piece suit with the beautiful new tie and the shiny shoes. He would have had the jeans and the t-shirt. He would have had the simple linen garments. The humble dress of a man coming before the Lord, not looking the part. At least not looking, trying to look holy, but looking the part of his humanity. Simple, plain linen garments. Interesting. God is not impressed by outer dress, but God also brings hope through the common. He brings hope through the common. For the high priest to take off his high priestly clothing, to set it aside literally, and to don these linen garments, reminds me of another high priest. It reminds me... (laughs) It's blowing out there. It reminds me of Jesus. For the Bible's clear. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Paul tells us that Jesus set aside... Literally set aside his heavenly garments, his heavenly garb, his high priestly attire, his glory. He set that aside. He emptied himself and became as nothing. Jesus came wearing common clothes, common human flesh. He didn't come in his glory the first time. He will the second time. But the first time he came, just like the high priest, wearing the simple flesh of humanity. Jesus was also washed, just like the high priest was washed. On the Day of Atonement. He came simply wearing the flesh of man. He was washed. Interesting, Jesus' baptism. Talked about in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Jesus' baptism. There's an interesting theological discussion. Why? Why was Jesus baptized? He was perfect. He was absolutely sinless. There was no reason in the world for Jesus to be completely washed. Except for this. He was about to atone for the sins of the world. And just like the high priest who was washed before he went in to make atonement, Jesus was washed right before he began his high priestly ministry of three years of teaching, of healing, and ultimately of sacrificing himself as the perfect offering. But that's where the comparison between Jesus and the high priest ends. For though Jesus put on common dress, and though Jesus was washed like the high priest, The high priest needed covering that Jesus did not need. Look at verse 5. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, covering the priest. For himself. That he make atonement for himself and for his household. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats... One for the Lord and one and the other lot for the scapegoat, or as we talked about on Sunday, the Azazel. And if you want to know more about that, we're not going to look at that tonight. I can tell you more on the side. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell to make it a sin offering. Verse 10, but, on, but the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Verse 11, then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for all his household and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering which is for himself. Now again, there were two goats. One that represented atonement, the other that represented, as we talked about Sunday, abolition, the abolition of sins, the goat that was driven out into the wilderness. But before the priest could even begin the process of making atonement for the people, he had to make atonement for himself. He had to cover himself. Literally, he had to go undercover. 
Why is that? Hebrews chapter 7 tells us, verse 28 tells us, the law appoints men as high priests who are weak. Who are weak. A few verses earlier than that, verse 26 says, but it's fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because he did this once for all, Jesus did, when he offered up himself. Again, the law appoints men who are weak. But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So though Jesus came and was washed, though he came wearing the simple garments of human flesh, he differed from the high priest in that he was absolutely perfect, whereas the high priest was not. The high priest had to be covered before he could go before the Lord. By the way, prophecy students, think about this. What else do we know about linen garments? It's what we are going to wear. (laughs) It's what we are going to wear. Revelation chapter 19 verse 8 says, It was given to her, talking about the bride of Christ, the church, to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And John tells us when Jesus returns in all his glory that we follow him. The armies, the hosts which are in heaven are clothed again in fine linen, white and clean, and they were following him on white horses. So even now we have early on in the priesthood, in the linen garments, we have a picture, a reminder of the royal priesthood that we are called to, each and every one of us in Christ. You have been called to be a priest, to rule and to reign with Jesus in that time called the millennium. And if you want to know more about that, Revelation, 6 o'clock, Sunday night. So covering the priest, that's part one. Part two, covering the place. Now this is what caught my attention. Verse 12, He shall take a fire pan full of coals from the fire upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. Inside the veil. The priest goes in to cover the place, as we will see, But another covering, another covering takes place. Before he covers, before he atones for literally the tabernacle itself, there's another interesting covering. Verse 13 says, He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony. Otherwise, he will die. Think about this. The high priest, he goes in to the holiest place. He takes with him a, a cup or two handfuls of incense. He takes some hot coals, some fire in his fire pan out of the altar from outside. And he walks in to behind the veil and begins to offer up that incense. When he dumps the incense on the fire, smoke begins to come up. And not just a little smoke, a lot of smoke. Remember a few weeks back, Gail and Margie brought their little incense burner and I got a little excited and I, I got it all lit up put one coal in there lit that and I put like three or four little pieces of frankincense on there way too much way too much I mean it was, the whole barn was just smelling uh, I mean it was kind of like you know you could have had some Eastern Indian music in here and we could have been doing some anyway it, it was too much we're talking about two full handfuls of this incense that he took in there into this small roughly what was it 10 by 10 room And in there, the smoke of the incense would fill the whole entire place. Some people have said, some commentators have said, it it filled up the place so that when the high priest was in there, he could open his eyes. Because without that covering, without that kind of cloudiness in there, there's no way he could look at the mercy seat and see the presence of the Lord. It would have been too much for him. He would have died. 
And so the Lord says, you need to offer this incense up. And when the incense comes up and fills the room, then you will be able to be in there and not die. I think, though, there's more to it than that. More to it than that. Not just a practical reason that that he could look with kind of the vague fog between him and the mercy seat. But there's a picturesque reason. And that's that incense portrays in the Bible intercession. Incense in the Bible, we've talked about this before, it portrays intercession. It is a picture of prayer. Revelation chapter 8 verse 3 tells us, Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. In other words, to enter into the room, incense, and the priest understood this, incense was what he offered when he was praying. It was a picture of prayer. It was connected to prayer. So as the priest came in and offered the incense, he was in prayer. I mean, you better believe he was in prayer. Again, the people knew this was a very, very tricky thing, dangerous thing, to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. They would tie a rope. Some of you know, around the ankle of the high priest every year we went in, when he went in there. Why? Just in case he died. So they could pull him out. So that no one else would have to go in there to get the dead body. They were so worried. After what happened to Nadab and Abihu, for someone to go before the presence, they were terrified. And so you can imagine the high priest going in there. Okay, Lord, I think we've got it all covered. I did the washing. I got the linen garments on. I got, okay, I got the fire pan with the thing. I hope this is enough, Lord. Please don't kill me. Please don't kill me. You know, I mean, he's praying as he's going in there. But he's doing much more than just praying for his own safety. He's praying for the people. He is pronouncing the sins of the people. He is asking for atonement before the Lord. The whole room was filled up. Filled up literally with prayer. Flip in your Bibles for a moment over to Isaiah. Book of Isaiah, chapter 56. Isaiah 56. It's easy to find if you open your Bible right in the middle and just kind of let it fall open. Isaiah is, it's either Psalms or Isaiah, you're going to be right about there. Right to the middle of your Bibles. Isaiah 56, and watch this. Beginning in verse 1. Speaking of promises of times yet to come. Thus says the Lord, Preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord... By the way, that's you. That's me. The foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord. The the non-Jewish people, the Gentile believers, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Why a dry tree? Because a eunuch couldn't produce children. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house... And within my walls a memorial, a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also, verse 6, stay with me here. Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him and to love the name of the Lord. To be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. 
Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and listen, make them joyful in my house of prayer. My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. Jesus got so angry when he came into the temple and he saw the money changers there. Why? Do you remember what he said? You have turned my father's house of prayer into a den of robbers. This is not supposed to be a den of robbers. It's a house of prayer. And he was speaking specifically to the witness that this was for the Gentiles. For these money changers, they were set up in the area called the court of the Gentiles. And Jesus came in and he saw what the Jewish people were doing and how the Gentiles were being affected and watching this whole thing and going, Oh, so I guess that's what this religion is about. It's bilking people for all they're worth and it's sticking it to them. It's getting as much money out of them. That's what the Jewish religion is. And Jesus said, I won't have it. My Father's house is a house of prayer, but not just for the Jews. For all people. There's coming a day, folks, and the Bible is explicit about this, a day when the temple in Jerusalem, what temple? There's no temple there right now. No, there's not. But when there will be a temple in Jerusalem, the Bible tells us built by the hand of Messiah himself, there will be the house of prayer for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. Some may say, I've come to God's house, but I miss his presence. I've been in different churches, different church buildings. I've even been here in the barn at times seeking God, wanting the Lord, but I'm, I'm missing His presence. The reality is the high priest could not go into His presence without the incense, without intercession, without prayer. And if you want to come into His presence, it requires prayer. Prayer. A thick cloud suffusing the entire room. It's a portrait of prayer, constant, consuming, filling up the place. I've mentioned this before, by the way, when we study. This is not a process by which I teach and you listen. I speak, you write down. I speak and you hear. When we are in Bible study, as different than any other kinds of study you can be involved in, you are worshiping. Not me. But you are in worship and connection with the Lord. And you should be and can be praying right now. While we're studying. Something hits you. You see something. The Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder. Some, some need or some maybe family issue. Or maybe something is spoken about or spoken to in Scripture that takes your mind off somewhere else. And next thing you know you find yourself talking to the Lord about it. Good. Good. Don't suddenly go, oh no, oh what note are we on? No, if you're in prayer with the Lord, that's right where you need to be. And if you're confused about something, Pray. Talk to him. Let this place be a house of prayer. Come before the presence of the Lord with prayer and you will experience his presence. Go back to Leviticus 16. Verse 14 going on says, Moreover, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. Also in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Seven times. We know in the Bible it's the number of completion, but also you Bible students may remember this or know this. It's the seven times, seven places. John Corson talks about seven places from Jesus' body that he bled on the cross. He bled from his head. He bled from both of his hands, from both of his feet, from the, from the scars in his back, from his lashing, and ultimately and finally from the spear thrust into his side. Seven places. 
7 is the picture of completion in Jesus' death on the cross, the complete, final, atoning sacrifice, but much more than atonement. It was redemption that happened on the cross. Well, verse 15 tells us, Then he shall slaughter the goat for the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. So he's talking about the goat. Again, that's for the people. But before we get to the people, verse 16, watch this. He shall make atonement for the holy place. Because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins, and thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. Now this fascinates me. And honestly, I've never seen this before. The Day of Atonement was atonement for the people. We'll get to that. It was atonement covering for the priests. We've studied that. But it was also covering for the place. The tabernacle itself had to be covered. The Holy of Holies had to receive atonement. The altar of sacrifice had to receive atonement. Why? Why? The, the tabernacle, this is the place where God's presence resides. This is the place, the holiest place within the entire camp of Israel. Why do you have to atone for that? What's going on here? You had to atone for a gang because the holy place itself was polluted. The tabernacle, God's holy dwelling place there among the Israelites, was completely polluted. The very presence of Israel surrounding the tabernacle had a polluting influence on it. The sins just borne by the high priest himself when he entered the tabernacle, no matter how washed and clean he was, still polluted the tabernacle. And possibly here we can begin to understand, maybe slightly, how vast the sin of man is in comparison to the holiness of God. That even man's very presence around the tabernacle polluted it to the point that for atonement to take place once a year, it had to be covered itself. The mercy seat had to have blood sprinkled on it. The altar of incense had to have blood tipped on all four of the horns of the altar. Because the very presence of man with his sin nature is defiling, it's corrupting, it's pollution. Verse 17 says, When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. No one was even to go near it. Why? Because they might pollute it. The high priest could go in, and if someone else wandered in there, pollution, you've got to start the whole process all over again. The high priest had to be covered. The holy place had to be covered. And listen and understand this, please, that so great is the contagion of sin among man. So deep and pervasive is our sin nature that even creation, the Bible tells us, is subjected to constant groaning and aching because of sin. That's how deep and horrifying sin really is. Romans 8 verse 20 tells us the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery, its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and we are watching it happen, aren't we? The groaning of the world... The birth pangs, upwards of possibly 40,000 people in Pakistan and India, surrounding areas, killed in the earthquake that just happened this week. That after Hurricane Katrina, I mean, is it going to stop? 
We're living in times, folks, where the natural disasters going on around us are horrific. Where the numbers of dead people, and you know, 40,000 is so overwhelming, I, I can't even get my arms around that figure. As we watch the numbers coming in from the fall of the two towers in New York City, as it was approaching 2,000 people, we were going, unbelievable. As it began to approach 3,000 people, we were overwhelmed by the loss of life among American citizens. 40,000 Arabs. 40,000 including Arabs and Indians who are dead because this world is groaning and aching. This is interesting. Um, you've heard John 3.16 many times. You know, I'm just going to have to not look at you, Lord, because you are killing me. You're cracking me up. John 3.16. You've heard the verse, God so loved what? God so loved the world. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you know that that verse is incredibly specific and intimate? But it's also more all-encompassing than possibly we have realized before. It's very intimate because God says, Jesus says, whoever believes in Him will not perish. Any individual person, history, past, present, or future, any person who believes in Him can be saved. But it is broader, gang. What Jesus is saying is broader than the whole of mankind throughout all history combined. What do you mean? God so loved the world. The word world there in the Greek is cosmos. It's not just you and I that God loved. Oh, He loves us, don't get me wrong, and more than anything in creation. That's the crown of His creation. He loves man. But He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We aren't the only people, we aren't the only beings who are going to be freed when Jesus returns. The world is going to be freed from its chains of futility and corruption. Suddenly the world with Jesus here again, it's going to be like Eden. It will be returned to that pristine state. But I want you to understand something else that's kind of interesting. And this is kind of a little uh, heads up, an early comment for, for you Revelation students. We're going to get to this and look at this a lot more in depth toward the end of the book of Revelation. But there is coming a day when the world, the skies above and the earth below will be done away with completely. Why? Because it's polluted. But that day will happen, and listen to me, after the millennium. Now, quickly, for those of you who aren't sure about the timing of things here, in a nutshell, the next thing on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church. That God is going to call believers out. After that time happens, there will at some point be a signing of a covenant between a man who is Antichrist and Israel that will set off a seven-year tribulation. After that tribulation period, Jesus returns where the Bible tells us, Revelation 20, very specifically, in fact, six times in that chapter, that, he will, that we will rule and reign with him on earth for a thousand years in a time of perfect peace and prosperity on the earth. Well, why would God do that? Why the millennium? Part of it is that he's keeping his promises to Israel. Because he guaranteed that one would sit on David's throne in Jerusalem and rule from there. And that will be Jesus. And during that time, during that time, the description of what happens on planet Earth is amazing. It, it, it's, it's restored. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. But after that time, after that time, there's a spider web. Barn living. After that time, 
after the millennium, Satan is loosed again for a very short amount of time. And why are you telling us all this, Rick? Because after that, the earth will be destroyed. What? Listen to what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Okay, so how does that work out with the millennium? Pay attention. The millennium happens, that thousand year reign of Christ, the earth is restored to a beautiful state at the time, but the earth and the heavens are still polluted. There's still the pollution of sin. Do you realize that during the millennium, people will make sin decisions? Then at the end of that millennial period, even under the reign and the authority of Christ, there will be a massive number of people who will rebel against Christ and sin. Oh, it just sounds like a fairy tale that you're making up. No, it's all here. And again, I'm, I'm taking you through it really fast tonight. I don't have time to go through all the verses for you. If you want to hear it, come to the Revelation study. I'm pitching that a lot tonight. I don't mean to. But the gang, after the perfect reign of Christ, on a perfectly restored earth, human sin will again rise and will again pollute. And the earth is going to have to be cleansed. It's going to have to be cleansed before we are ushered into eternity. And that cleansing process, this is awesome. God is going to do a brand new thing. Listen to this, Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. Listen to that word. For behold, he says, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Create. I create a new heaven and a new earth. He says, I create a new Jerusalem. Why are you focusing so much on that word? It's the same word in the Hebrew used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so he created. What does that mean? The Hebrew word is bara. Bara, B-A-R-A. That word literally means to make something out of nothing. God is not just going to restore the earth. He's not just going to rejuvenate or rework or refurbish planet earth. At the end of that millennial period, he's going to wipe it out. He's going to wipe the earth off the face of the earth. There will be nothing. He's going to completely burn it out. Skies, the earth, the heavens, everything gone. And he is going to create, Isaiah tells us, something out of nothing. Bara. A brand new heaven. A brand new earth. Never before touched by or ever touched by human flesh or touched by sin. It will be absolutely 100% perfect. And Revelation 21 verse 1 says, I saw it. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, brand new. Perfect. Because the heavens and the earth, like the tabernacle back in Leviticus 16, are polluted. They're polluted. Atonement was made for the tabernacle once a year to be clean enough so that atonement could be made for the people. But even the tabernacle itself was polluted. Verse 20 going on. Verse 20 tells us when he finishes, when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Even the altar, by the way. Even the altar had to be covered, but it makes sense. That's the place where the sins were offered up. The sins of Israel were atoned for right there on the altar. It had to be covered. It had to be cleaned up. The foulest sin met the fullest atonement at the altar, which is exactly what happened at the cross. The depth of our sin, meeting the perfection, the beauty, the wonder of Jesus. And gang, once again, when Christ went to the cross, He didn't just cover over sins with atonement. He absorbed our sins for the sake of abolishing them. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. A quote I've said over and over through the study of Leviticus, Andrew Bernard's words, the sense of sin renders Jesus precious to the soul. The sin so deep that the priest had to be covered, that the place had to be covered, and finally, the people. Number three, covering the people. Verse 21. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. The scapegoat, also the word Azazel. Azazel is that live goat that will symbolically bear the articulated sins of the nation. Notice what the high priest does here. He puts his hands on the goat and then he articulates, he speaks all the sins of the nation. I don't even know how he did it in one day. But he would proclaim verbally there with his hands on the goat the sins committed by Israel as a nation. And as he did, God did something. He allowed a symbolic, a symbolic passing along of sin. But now the goat was identified with the sin. Now the sin that was spoken was placed on symbolically the head of the goat. The goat was driven out. And as we saw on Sunday, the, the goat, the scapegoat, Jesus became our scapegoat, driven out into the wilderness. Driven out literally to place the place of hell. Driven to the depths for the sake of atoning for, no, abolishing our sin. It's interesting that when they were finally in the, the stationary temple in Jerusalem, men were placed at intervals, stationed out into the wilderness. And this man who was ready to take the goat out would go out there and he'd pass the first man and the first man would call back to the camp. He, he's just passed by! And then he'd continue on further. And the second man would call to the first man. He's just passed by. And the first man would call to the people. He's just passed by. And this would be passed along and passed along until finally the man was out so far into the wilderness that there was no way the goat could make its way back here. No way the goat could find its way home. And that word would be passed along back to the people as well. There he goes. He's gone. 
and the goat was completely led out into the wilderness, out of sight, to the place of separation, which was, for the Jewish people, a picture of hell, completely cut off. That's where their sin was sent. Verse 23, reading on, says, Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and he shall leave them there. He shall bathe his body with water in a holy place and put on his clothes and come forth to offer the burnt offering and the burnt offerings for the people and to make atonement for himself and the people. And then he shall offer up and smoke the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The one who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe with water and afterwards he shall come into the camp but the bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be taken outside the camp and they shall burn their hides and their flesh and their refuse in the fire then the one who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body with water then afterward he shall come into the camp it's a glorious moment finally the day of atonement Yom Kippur comes close to an end and imagine being there in the camp as the smoke from the fat would billow high above the tabernacle. The smoke of the hides and the flesh billowing high outside the walls of the camp. The man who had led the scapegoat out comes back in now and washes. The people are watching all of this take place. And finally, finally the high priest emerges from the tabernacle alive. Praise the Lord, he's alive. And the people knew joyfully and peacefully they were covered only covered but at least they were covered now in Rosh Hashanah even today Jewish tradition encourages the people to greet each other with this New Year's wish they would say to each other and do say to each other may your name may your name be inscribed in the book of life but that wish changes during the awesome days approaching Yom Kippur and it becomes not just inscribed in the book of life but one Jew will say to another may your name be sealed in the book of life but here's the tragedy the tragedy of Yom Kippur for all its seriousness for all the covering of all the years after the destruction of the Jewish temple and the fact that the nation as a whole overlooked Jesus as their Messiah it left the people uncovered think about this AD 71 one year after the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, when no atonement could be made on the Day of Atonement, and every Jewish person alive at the time would have felt uncovered. No atonement. And for all the substitutionary sacrifices across the years, they have still been left uncovered. No atonement. For true atonement cannot happen for the Jewish person unless there is a Holy of Holies, a place where the atonement can be made. Victor Buxbazen in his book The Gospel and the Feast of Israel said the following he says deep in its heart Israel knows that its atonement is of Messiah he alone is able to bring forgiveness to this gives witness an ancient prayer in the day of atonement liturgy it refers plainly to Isaiah 53 in the following plaintive and wistful tones he quotes our righteous Messiah has departed from us we are horror stricken and have none to justify us. Our iniquities and the yoke of our transgressions he carries who is wounded because of our transgressions. He bears on his shoulder the burden of our sins 
to find pardon for all our iniquities. By his stripes we shall be healed. Listen to this. But they say, O eternal one, it is time that thou shouldest create him anew. How tragic that the Jew today would cry out, O eternal one, it's time that you bring Messiah that you create Him anew, completely missing that Messiah is not created, He's Creator. Completely misunderstanding that Jesus was, is Messiah in flesh. That He already came, that He already not only made atonement, but made abolition for sins. And yet Israel continues to yearn for atonement, to yearn for covering. But watch this. Look back at verse 23. It tells us Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place and leaves them there. And then he bathes his body with water in a holy place and he put on his clothes and he comes forth offering his burnt offering and the burnt offering for the people and makes atonement for himself and the people. Do you see what happens here? He goes into the holy place wearing the linen clothes like Jesus came into the earth wearing the plain clothes of humanity. But the next time the people see the high priest, he is dressed in all of his glorious high priestly garments. In the same way, the next time we see Jesus, he will not be seen in linen garments. He will not be wearing the plain clothes of just human flesh. As John described in Revelation chapter 1, he will be seen in all of his glory, the high priest shining and wondrous and perfect and wonderful. And this picture was seen by the Jewish people. The high priest would go in looking as plain as any of them, but he would come out the high priest again in the same way that Jesus comes out, our high priest. It's awesome. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made of hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And when Christ appeared, having obtained not just atonement, but redemption, He appears again as our high priest, robed in all His glory. Gang Yom Kippur served as an annual reminder of sin. But Jesus came that our sins might be forgiven and forgotten with finality. By the way, the last thing that would happen on Yom Kippur, the last thing of the day was the blowing of the shofar. The shofar is that big ram's horn that they would blow to signify the Jewish holidays. And at the end of Yom Kippur, the horn would blow, the trumpet would blast, which for the Jew always heralded the coming or the hopeful coming of Messiah. The Bible tells us that when our great high priest appears again, the trumpet will sound and we will be caught up to be with him. The trumpet will blast, heralding the coming of Messiah. Now, last thing, and I told you this last part would be quick. It will be. You might ask a question, after looking at this, God is very specific about where the sacrifices take place. Someone might ask, well, why can't we just sacrifice anywhere on any day? Why can't, if I'm feeling particularly sinful and I want to be completely cleansed, why can't I have a day of atonement tomorrow or the next day? And why do I have to go to the tabernacle? Can't I just sacrifice right there outside of my tent or outside the camp? Why does it have to be so specific? Watch this, verse 1 of chapter 17. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who slaughters it outside the camp, and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting, to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guiltiness is to be reckoned to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. The reason, the Lord says, is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them in to the Lord, at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. You may recall peace offerings. That was the one offering that was shared. God got some of the offering. The Israelite got some. They basically had dinner with the Lord. A peace offering. But he goes on and says in verse 6, The priest shall sprinkle the blood on the altar of the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting and offer up the fat and smoke as a soothing aroma to the Lord. Now watch this. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. Some of your Bibles may say goat idols. Some of your other Bibles might just say devils or demons. But it's literally goat demons. They shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. This shall be a permanent statue to them throughout their generations. Then you shall say to them, Any man from the house of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man also shall be cut off from among his people. One last point and we're done. After the sacrifice of Yom Kippur, God directs the people back to the person to whom sacrifice is to be given, and that's the Lord. Why? Why, especially right here in this ordinance, does he take time to step back and say, Now listen, Moses, here's the ordinance for Yom Kippur, but beyond that, you need to understand and you need to tell the people, no sacrificing is to take place anywhere but here at the tabernacle. Why so specific? What's going on here? Remember, Israel had been in Egypt for 400 years. And in Egypt, for 400 years, and Egypt is always a picture in the Bible of the world, Living in Egypt, it's one thing, as we've said in the past, to get the people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of the people. And there was still a lot of Egypt in the Israelites. There were still practices, pagan practices that they followed. And one of them was sacrificing to the goat demons. What in the world is that? The goat demons, that word in the Hebrew is Sair. S-A-I-Y-R. Sair. And specifically, it referenced an Egyptian god. That Egyptian god's name was Mendes. Mendes, the Egyptian god. Mendes was a half goat, half man. In our literature today, he would be a fawn. You know, talk about in the Chronicles of Narnia, or talk about in the Lord of the Rings, he would be a fawn, half goat, half man. Mendes, and he was an Egyptian god. And Mendes was one that would wreak havoc with the people if they didn't sacrifice to him. He was a stinker. There was a Greek counterpart for Mendes whose name was, and you may remember this or recognize it, Pan. The Greek god Pan and Mendes and Sair, the goat demons, same, same false deity. Pan. The people would sacrifice to Pan because if they didn't, he would put them in a pan-ick. That's where we get the word. Panic. 
Because Pan, this god, would cause problems to happen and freak people out. So they would have a panic. So what do you do? How do you handle this? God says, I don't want you sacrificing to your own panic, to your fears, to other gods, to demons. I want the sacrifice to be right here. God says, in essence, I will be the focus of your sacrifices. And I end with this question. Who is the focus of your sacrifice? Who or what is the focus of your sacrifice? Now apply that just to you personally. Take this thought with you tonight. Who's the focus of your sacrifice? Are you? Are you the focus of the hard work that you're doing, the gifts that you bring, your abilities, your strengths, your joys, your hopes, your aspirations, your plans? Are all these things for you? Are you the focus of your sacrifice? Are your children, those of you parents, who are working so hard to provide certain things for your kids and so you are sacrificing and sacrificing and sacrificing, are your children the focus of your sacrifice? Are there other people who are the focus of your sacrifice or things that you hope to achieve that become the focus of your sacrifice? The Lord says, I want to be the focus. All of your sacrifices you bring to me. If you are sacrificing anything, sacrifice it to me. Bring it to me. Oh, Frank, if I did that kind of thing, I, I could lose my job. Great! Good! Then lose your job for the Lord. But if I sacrificed everything for the sake of my relationship with God, I mean, there'd be relationships that I would lose. Yes, there will be. Jesus promised as much. There will be some people who cannot handle the fact that you put the Lord first. But it doesn't change what God commanded to Israel and what Jesus compels us to. That He is the focus of our sacrifice, not us. Last thing, and I'll encourage you with this. If you make the Lord the focus of your sacrifice, if what you give up, you give up as to the Lord, He will multiply it in ways you cannot even imagine. He will do so.